Hey, good morning. It's good to be here. My name is Matthew. I'm the Trinity Parish Pastor on the east side, and so that's why I look like a stranger to a bunch of you. Um, I'm not normally here. I'm normally in Decatur during this time, but it's a gift always to be here with you. It really is such a pleasure to worship alongside you here on the west side. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the book of Luke 16 today. So if you have a Bible and you want to start turning there, Luke 16, I'm going to read a text. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in just like normal and see what God has for us. So Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, there is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can pass from there to us. He said, well, then, Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's quite a text for the guest preacher. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you that as we sang, it is true. You are here moving in our midst, healing every heart. And so, Lord, we just make ourselves mindful of that. We remember. We remember that what is happening is we are just simply placing ourselves in your stream, and you're doing all the work. And so, Spirit, we invite you. Come. Do your good work in us. Make us into new people. Pray for an openness to receive. And we ask, Lord, that as we do, Lord, we would know the way forward. We would know the next right step. So God be with us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, This is really quite a story, isn't it? Um, If you're familiar with it, you're like, oh, I know this. But if you're not, you're like, wow. That's quite a story. Uh, It's very provocative. It's very compelling. It's uncomfortable. It's meant to be uncomfortable. If you are feeling uncomfortable right now, so was his original audience when he told this story. 
And actually, I think it's important for us to recognize from the beginning that that's, that discomfort is actually, I think, part of the, part of the purpose. He's stirring something up uh, in us with this story. So what we're going to do is we're just going to jump right in and see what this story is about and then see what it might mean uh, for us. Uh, our first thing that we'll see is that Jesus is telling a story here, and it's about a rich man and a poor man. It's the first thing that we see. It's about a rich man and a poor man. Now, it's not to say that this story is not also about the afterlife, uh, but it's not primarily about the afterlife. The, the afterlife is just the backdrop. It's the, it's the context in which the story is taking place. I've taught sermons on this text before that have been just about heaven and hell. And while I don't think it's necessarily wrong to pull principles about the afterlife from this, I don't think it's Jesus' main point, which I figured that out this week. I mean, I really, on Monday, I was talking to one of my uh, colleagues, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've taught this before, no problem. And then several hours later, I realized I actually need to start from the beginning, because Jesus' point in this, I don't think he's not walking down the road with his disciples. He's like, hey, I got a story for you all about heaven and hell. And they're like, tell us more. It's actually, he's, he's having a conversation with certain people, and that conversation is informing this story. And so who is that conversation with? I'm glad you asked. He's having a conversation with Pharisees. He's having a conversation specifically with wealthy religious people. In fact, we can see in the context of this verse, you just back up five verses to verse 14, it says this, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, that's a little like, oh, okay, now I know who we're talking about. They heard all of this. That is, they heard last week's text that we taught on about the shrewd manager. Remember that? Also a very weird story. So they heard this and they ridiculed him. They said, and so he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others but God knows your hearts. In other words, you focus on externals, but God knows what's going on under the surface. For what is prized by human beings, we've talked about the treasure of the church, what is treasured by human beings, Jesus says, is actually an abomination in the sight of God. That is, it's worthless. It's the thing that you think is most important is actually not important at all. Now, he's talking in this to religious, wealthy people, and he is not talking to people who don't give money away. That's important to note. He is talking to people who are scrupulous in their giving, so much so that later on in the Gospels, Jesus will confront the Pharisees. You may be familiar with this text where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe, that is, you give 10% of even your herb garden. You give 10% of your dill and your mint and your cumin. So it's like you have your basil plant and you're like, nine leaves, the 10th leaf I put on the side. And you're like, nine more, pull the 10th leaf off. He's like, you even give 10% of your herb garden. He's like, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law. And your hearts are full of corruption and greed. So when he's talking to people who are lovers of money, he's talking to wealthy people and he tells a story about wealthy people, he's not simply trying to get 10% out of their hands. That's not what this is about. He's talking about what's alive in their hearts. And so he tells a story about poverty and about wealth and how these things are forming us spiritually, what kind of people they're making us into. He's not talking primarily about heaven and hell. For a number of reasons, I think that's true. For one, he's actually just picking up a very well-known folktale from the time. Uh, Going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, the classic Greeks, there are stories about a rich person and a poor person who die, and in the afterlife, their fortunes are reversed. It's not a, it's, it, Jesus didn't come up with that story. It's an old, old story. In fact, the only thing that's different from all of those stories and Jesus' story is that typically in those stories, the person who is in agony begs to be sent back or to have someone sent back to warn others. So think of Jacob Marley from A Christmas Carol. 
Dickens is doing the same thing. A wealthy person who is in agony, who then begs in some way to come back and get to warn people, hey, be careful. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's just dusting off sort of an old, well-known story, and he's using it to make a point about money and wealth. He also, I think we can say he's not talking about the afterlife, primarily, because he never talks about heaven and hell in this. He never uses the words once, not at all. He talks about Hades. Hades is just the place of the dead in Greek thought. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word sheol. So if you read the Old Testament, you see that word a lot, especially in the Psalms. Sheol is the sort of shadowy underworld that the the Jewish people understood as being the place where the dead go. So whether you're talking about Sheol or Hades, you're talking about a place that both Greeks and Jews thought everyone went to. This wasn't a place that bad people went to. This was a place that everyone went to. Everyone was in Hades. In fact, a number of scholars pointed out that that both the rich man and Lazarus are likely in Hades having this conversation. So you can imagine them, they're almost side by side, and yet there is some large chasm between them. And I don't think we have to understand it necessarily as a geographic barrier. It could just be simply symbolic. But to be right next to each other in some way, in the same place, and yet having utterly different experiences. One of them experiencing torment, and the other one, being comforted, or as the writers say, carried to the side of Abraham, or literally put into the lap of Abraham, or even better, as the King James translated it, carried all the way into Abraham's bosom. Whatever that means, that was the idyllic paradise for the 1600 whatever translators. So he is there in Abraham's bosom, having a great time, and then there is the rich man who is in torment in the same place, and they begin to have a conversation. This is a story primarily about how wealth forms us spiritually, spoken to people who have great wealth, which makes it, of course, very applicable for us in this room. Right? I mean, I, I was doing some research for last week's sermon, and I, I came across you know, statistics on wealth disparity and so on, things that we kind of are all aware of. But I wasn't aware that if you make $32,000, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. So that's, that's not very much money in American dollars, is it? $32,000 and you're in the top billions and billions and billions of people, significantly less than us. This is a story told to people with great wealth about how wealth forms you spiritually. It's important for us to understand that context because that is who Jesus is speaking to. Now, the question, though, for, that we have to ask is, is the rich man and, the, and Lazarus, are they experiencing what they're experiencing in the afterlife simply because they had money or didn't have money? And the answer to that is no. And we can say that because the beginning of the story starts with there was a man who was at the gate of the rich. Lazarus was at the gate of the rich man, and he was just begging for crumbs. And I think we are meant to infer that those crumbs never came to him, that he never got any help at all. So we're talking about how these things, though, have formed these two people. And then what happens after they die? The second thing we see in this text is that Jesus tells a story about a nameless person and a story about a named person. Scholars have pointed out for a long time how important that is. First of all, because the only time that there is ever a name in any of Jesus' parables, it's this time. Every other parable character is nameless. So there's, a, there's an actual distinction that Jesus is trying to draw between these two people, and it probably has something uh, to do with their identity, with who they are. S- some have said maybe Jesus just wants us to sort of supply our own name. You know, so there was a rich man named Matthew who owned multiple pairs of pants. And Matthew could basically eat anything he wanted whenever he wanted. 
And there was a poor man, we'll call him Lazarus, who lived outside of Matthew's house in Decatur and over whom Matthew would step on his way to brunch. And so he's just telling a story. He just wants you to put yourself in the context so you understand that this is about you and about me. But I think there's more going on here than just simply him wanting us to supply a name. I think he's actually making a statement, a larger statement about identity. And the reason I think that is because in the Bible, the name of a person is huge. The name is the person. The name is their identity. It's their character. It's what they're made of, which is, which is why uh, here at Trinity and at all churches, we sing several songs about the name of the Lord to the name of the Lord. We worship the name of the Lord. And if you're new to church, that's got to feel very strange the first several times you see that, right? Why not just sing straight to the person? Why sing about the name of the person? It's because in the Bible, the name is the person. The name is the embodiment of the person. When we sing to the name of the Lord, we are singing to the one who is the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's who we're singing about when we sing about the name of the Lord. And so Jesus gives a story in which one character has a name, And one is simply a rich man. His name is what he had. And now in Hades, he doesn't have what he had anymore. His identity, I think we're meant to infer, was in what he had and what that gave him, the sort of life he had, what his lifestyle was like. In other words, Jesus is telling us a story in which he wants you and me to ask this question. How is my name or identity or sense of purpose or the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning or the thing that talks me off the ledge later in the afternoon? How is that thing found in something that could be taken from me? How is that found in a thing, a person, you know, like kids or a marriage or a relationship or in in your appearance, in your job? And what other people think about you. How is your sense of identity, my sense of identity, rooted, anchored, drawing from something that I could lose? Because, really the whole point is, is that if your identity is in anything that is like that, in a moment, it can be taken away. Whereas Lazarus, the name, literally, his name means the one whom God helps. His name is a parable in a word. He wants, he wants you and I to understand that Lazarus had lived his life essentially in a place of dependence on mercy. And because of that, because of his reliance upon God, because his, his identity was actually found in the one who was helping him, that is, in God, in his salvation, um, Lazarus has a very different experience. I think we're meant to, to read the story and to ask the question, well, what is my name? What is your name? I mean, not the name your parents gave you. The, the rich man had a name, too. What's your name? Is it mom? Is it businessman? Is it leader? What is your name? Is it rich man? He wants us to ask these questions about ourselves because they begin to unearth the larger thing that he's getting at in this, which is that this is a story about the trajectory of our lives, about how the things that we're doing today are, this is the final point, are training us, are training us for who we are becoming. Our present life is a training ground for a future life. I think one of the really fascinating things about this story that has has been stuck with me for a long time now is that this rich man, his character, his um, 
I don't know, his way of being carries on with him from his estate, very wealthy person, all the way into Hades. And the only thing that's different between his, how, who he is in his estate and who he is in Hades, the only difference is how comfortable he is. He's not very comfortable in Hades, and because of that, he's very frustrated because rich people are used to being comfortable. And so he can't control that, and so he's frustrated by that. But as far as the things that he does, and just go with me for a minute, this is, this is crazy. So even when he's in Hades, he is still doing what? Bossing Lazarus around. He's still making demands. He's still only concerned with getting, making himself feel better. He blame shifts. He seems to imply that he wasn't given enough information to prevent this in himself. Maybe he could do something about it for someone else. Finally, someone from the underworld cares enough about the people still on earth. Thank God for him. But he blame shifts his way out of this. This isn't really my responsibility. He doesn't even ask to leave. He only asks to get Lazarus in to where he is. He doesn't try to get out of it. He just wants it to be slightly more comfortable. In other words, there's something about his self-centered, turned-in-on-himself, power-hungry, greedy, whatever thing that just carries right into him so that he can be in a completely different place, as he says, in flames, and actually still be the same person. That the things that he had chosen, the things that he had done, the person he had been just carried on with him right onto the other side of the grave. I mean, how much has really changed in this person? He carries it all in. Dallas Willard, who is, you know, like one of our heroes uh, and grandfathers here at Trinity, Dallas Willard loved to poke fun at this idea that is pretty common in the church, what he called the cosmic car wash. The cosmic car wash, Dallas said, was this idea that at the end of a person's life, all of their immaturity, all of their character deficiencies, all the things about them that they know really probably need to change— that suddenly, magically, in a moment, we'll just die and we'll just go through this cosmic car wash and, you know, the sponges from angels will come and they'll just scrub off all these things and we'll come out the other side, a new model. Shiny and perfect, mature and grounded, reliant on the right things and not reliant on the wrong things. He says, there's no reason to think that that's actually going to happen in the Bible. Otherwise, it makes no sense of discipleship. It makes no sense of formation. Why would you be a disciple of Jesus if really in the end, in a moment, it's all going to catch up to you anyway? Why care about it at all? He says, rather, what we need to understand is that on the other side of death, we will be in a place with no more sin. That's true, and that's really good news. Thanks be to God. But, he, but we carry with us who we are. We carry with us into our next life our character. That is probably an uncomfortable thing for some of us. I mean, I think about my own self and, um, you know, that spirit inside of me that just criticizes uh, everyone around me who doesn't move as fast or get as much done as me, or that really angsty, impatient part of me that feels really put out by um, long lines or people who pay with checks or um, a person who takes an extra second to realize the lights turned green or um, someone who goes to the self-checkout line with a whole cart of groceries and backs the whole store up. Um, really inconsiderate people like that. That thing in me, that, that self-righteous thing in me that looks down my nose at people who care about issues different than the issues I care about or vote differently than the way uh, that I vote. 
Whatever that, that thing is, that immature, that relationally immature thing in me that, that is always willing to punch out of conversations if they get kind of uncomfortable or tedious, that thing that always keeps my safety net, I call it my iPhone. And at any moment, I can be millions of miles away with thousands of strangers, and I don't have to be with the people in the room in front of me. I don't have to be present to them. I don't have to be engaged. I can just punch out any time. It's just such a safe thing. I just always feel in my pants. It's right there. It's so good to know that I don't have to be here if I don't want to be. Those things, I just think that somehow maybe those things, if they're not dealt with, if they're not worked on, if I don't grow in those places, maybe I'm still in a thousand years going to still be patting my hip wondering if there's a way out of a conversation. Because the, Because of... I can draw a straight line from who I am today to where I'm going. We're meant to ask a question like this, I think. If I were in this coming week to make the exact same decisions as what I made last week, and I know that's a small data sample, so we, you know, you got to run with the metaphor. But if I were to make the same decisions next week that I've made this previous week, and I were to just run that out, you know, just copy-paste, control-V, control, just on and on and on and on and on. Um, who, where am I going? Who am I becoming? Because the thing that you and I tend to think is that one day I will care about these things. One day I will address these things. The day will come when I'll actually take this part of me seriously. But right now, but we, there is a line that is drawn from where we are and the decisions we make and who we're becoming and what our character is that points us into a, a future. And the life that we're living right now is training us for the life that we're going to lead in that day. Or C.S. Lewis says it this way in The Great Divorce, which if you've not read that book, you should just get up right now. We'll understand. Go buy it and go home. It's better than anything I'm going to say this whole day. Um, Lewis says this. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Hell begins with just a mood, you know. But you're still distinct from it. You still can criticize it in yourself. Oh, I don't know why I'm always in such a bad temper. You can criticize it. Uh, You can even wish that you could stop it. But, he says, there will come a day when maybe you can no longer see yourself as distinct from it. There may be a day when there's no you left to criticize or even to enjoy the mood. But just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. It's not a question, he writes, of God sending people to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Um, The story, I think, is meant to serve as as a reminder and as a warning that we are in the process right now of training. Your life is training. Yes, there's something, you know, uh, there's some retribution in this text. I think we're supposed to understand that. that this This man who denied crumbs to a beggar is now being denied a drop of water. There's something poetic and ironic about that and tragic. But the question about even retribution itself is, is what this person experiencing, is he experiencing punishment or is he just experiencing the natural consequences of his life? Is he actually just finding himself in a place of isolation and longing that has always been true? Or as Jesus says it earlier in the same chapter, is just the content of his heart finally being put on display and the things that he used to justify himself and his existence before people is now being seen for what it is. The story ends with Jesus um, telling about how this man is begging for someone to come back. And Abraham says, no, they have the prophets. They have Moses. He's like, no, but there could be more. Maybe if there was a miracle. And Jesus gives this very sort of ominous, clear foreshadowing 
which is even if there was a resurrection, even if someone walked around who'd been in a tomb, it's not enough to melt some hearts. And the story ends. It's left hanging there, just like uncomfortable and tragic. But there's something about this man. There's some, the rich man has a moment of humanness that I want us to land with. He has a human moment where even in his agony, he's thinking of his brothers. It might be the last human thing in this man left. He thinks of his brothers. And he thinks if someone could just get to them, maybe they would, he says, maybe they could repent. What is he thinking of in that term? C.S. Lewis, again, Welcome to Trinity. C.S. Lewis uh, says in Mere Christianity, um, every time you and I make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than what it was before. Every time you and I make a choice, every decision, you're turning that central part of you, the chooser in you, into something a little different than what it was before. You are slowly turning the central thing, either, he says, into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. What if, what if they could repent? What if they could begin to choose, use their chooser differently? And I think the story is hanging out there for you and me for this reason. Jesus wants you and me to recognize that you and I have choices. You and I have a choice. That you're in the process of training for something. That you're becoming a person. You are right now in the, spirit, in, in the process of spiritual formation, as Dallas loves to say. You, you may not recognize what you're being formed into. It may not be an intentional process, but everyone in this room is going through spiritual formation currently. The question is, is what if you and I could repent? What is recognizing where I am today? What does it invite me into? The story is just hanging out there. And it's uncomfortable, but it's not uncomfortable because your fate is sealed. That's not what makes this story uncomfortable because your fate is not sealed. Thanks be to God, your fate is not sealed. The story is uncomfortable because it tells you and reminds you and me that your life has significant weight and bearing to it, everything that you and I do. There's not a spiritual component to your life and then the rest of your life, the secular component of your life. The whole life matters. The whole life, every decision. It's all forming us in a direction. And what if we could begin to understand that? The rich man doesn't necessarily understand why he's there, but Jesus, I think, essentially says to the rich man, but didn't, you knew what to do. You saw Lazarus all those years at your gate. Even just now, as I say say these things to you, I know there's something like, I'm not sure what exactly I'm supposed to do with this. And I just think the Spirit of God says, don't you? Don't you? All those years you walked over Lazarus, didn't you know? Oh, sure, I know that probably by the end you didn't even notice him anymore, but do you remember when you still noticed Lazarus? Do you remember when you still had to choose to turn your nose up and walk by? Do you remember when your chooser was still active, rich man? Do you remember when the chooser in you was still alive and you could choose? You could make a choice. You could move in a different direction. You could choose to be a different kind of person. Do you remember he lays it out before us. He says, your life has significant weight and bearing. Who are you becoming? 
Where are you going? If you were to just repeat again and again, what, where are you ending? Because you and I are made in the image of God. You're made in the image, in, in the imagination of God to be a person who looks like, reflects, acts like, thinks like, moves like God. That's what, that's what we're all about here at Trinity, to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. This happens through the Holy Spirit who works in us in this moment, in this place you are moving. Jesus just looks you in the eye, he looks me in the eye, and he says, let's turn the chooser. Let's decide. Why don't we stand up together? Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.